Hello, listeners. This podcast is hosted by International Idea. In the next minutes, we will help you make sense of what's happening today in democracy worldwide. Welcome to Democracy Ideas podcast. My name is uh, Alistair Scrutton, and today I'm talking to Alistair Doyle. Alistair Doyle is a former Environment Reuters correspondent and also author of the recent Great Melt, um, a book which uh, I highly recommend uh, that people read. It's out in your best bookshops now. Hi, Alistair. Um, welcome to Democracy Ideas podcast. Perhaps you could just um, kick off. Today, we really want to talk about uh, the, uh, the issue of democracy and climate change. The two are really linked. Uh, there are um, essentially uh, no ways that democracy can survive if the world doesn't survive climate change. Um, and we're looking at ways of trying to kind of forge social consensus around the need for climate change, but also to do this within democratic structures and not fall prey to the illusion of using Chinese models, for example, not to deal with the likes of climate change. And so today we're going to try and talk about some of the topics uh, around democracy and climate change. But first, perhaps you could introduce yourself and explain a bit how you grew into this role um, as a journalist uh, and as a writer, very much concerned about climate change um, and also very much involved in so many of these different processes, multilateral processes, especially the recent COP27 in Shansha. Sure. Well, thanks very much, Alistair, for the introduction and the recommendation for my book, The Great Melt. Um, you were, in fact, my boss for some of the years when we worked together at Reuters. So thank you for that as well, for your guidance there. Um, <laughs> as you say, I've, I've been working, I've been covering the environment for about 20 years. I was the environment correspondent for Reuters for 15 of those. And I've been to Goodness, 14 COPs, um, conferences of the parties, these annual climate meetings from Milan to Montreal, from Nairobi to Lima. Um, um, and since then, I've written, written this book about um, sea level rise, basically, which is uh, talking about the melt of ice from Greenland to Antarctica. And but visiting places on the front lines, people living in Fiji or Panama who are moving inland or have to move inland or traveling to Antarctica with some of the scientists trying to figure out what's going on. So, yeah, um, along the way, I've seen a lot of uh, democracy at work or not at work in these climate com talks, of course. Uh, I didn't go to the the last one in Chamashek, but I've been to, well, having gone to 14 of them, that's just over half of all the ones that's ever been held up to now COP27. Um, I guess the, the, the big headline there was, um that they agreed a loss and damage um agreement a fund that will be set up now sometime in the future to help countries cope with the effects of climate change that go beyond what you can adapt to you know in fiji for example with this book i i, I saw a village which had been moved inland where the village chief took me down to the beach and showed me um stumps of which had been the the foundations of his home um, and he showed me two or three sea walls. Of course, these are adapting to climate change, but eventually these things just got washed away. So loss and damage would fill that gap in a sense of, of, of trying to um, compensate as a controversial word that Americans and developed countries don't uh, developed countries don't like, but 
they're going to pay for something to help people with losses you cannot um, you can't just absorb yourself uh, long-term droughts uh, the impacts of hurricanes that uh, that destroy houses and 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 whole communities um you know in, in fiji for example there was this the the whole uh, they'd been they'd moved the village inland uh, 140 people they'd done much much the work themselves but they'd had to leave behind the graveyard um right by the sea that was swamped so you know how do you how would a loss and damage compensate anybody for that or for the loss of your heritage or for losses that go beyond all of these things um again on the democracy front of the negotiations the um developing countries have been calling for a loss and damage fund for 30 years since this whole thing began since it all kicked off i look back um, at a story i wrote at the climate talks in qatar um, a decade ago and the story there was headlined something like you know poor countries to push for loss and damage fund in 2013 <laughs> so you know they've been banging on the door for an awful long time um and it's not it's not really worked out for them um, how does how do you think of this so you know to some degree right the cop 27 conferences they they are they're the ultimate representation right of this kind of multilateral UN process on climate negotiations. How there was there's always cynicism about what these summits achieve. How does the Shamshet one, do you think, uh, this this agreement on loss and damage, however limited it could it is, you know, in, in the details, and the devil is always in the details, how does it compare with other COBs, do you think, uh, in terms of what's been achieved? It, it's sort of a landmark to say that we've actually got a, an agreement to set up a fund, even though they haven't decided what money will go into it, who will pay for it, or any of those details that will be absolutely impossible or really, really difficult to work out. Um, there's been money promised before for, for to help developing countries. Um, um, 100 billion was promised in 2009 per year by 2020, and you know it's only it's it's fallen short of that. So. This wasn't a massive breakthrough for the climate negotiations. Um, the biggest one, of course, has been was the Paris Agreement uh, in 2015, which set out for the first time a way of getting all countries on board. That's been the, the tension in climate negotiations for most of the time has been the dispute between the, the developed countries on one hand and the developing countries who were then defined by the original convention back in 1992, irrespective of the economic growth that's happened since then. So, you know, Singapore is a developing country, uh, South Korea is a developing country, um, China, with you know, um, is a developing country under this. So, even though it's now overtaken the United States by a long way to be the biggest um, greenhouse gas emitter, so there's been this tension between the developing countries on one hand and then the developed countries who bear the the main historical responsibility for for all this greenhouse gases that we've spewed into the atmosphere since the industrial revolution you know britain where we're from um has been you know among the worst as the originator of the um industrial revolution but of course you know we bear the responsibility so the Paris Agreement kind of broke that logjam of who does what. 
by calling things nationally determined contributions. <laughs> it's a kind of weird uh, thing to encapsulate such a, a, a brilliant idea, which was until then, you know, the Kyoto Protocol, uh, the 1997 treaty obliged rich nations to cut their emissions, but uh, and it didn't really place much um, uh, burden on developing countries. But um, and so the, the United States never signed up for the Kyoto Protocol, um, saying China and India should be part of this as well with binding uh, obligations. But the word nationally determined contributions, the phrase rather, it's kind of summed up nationally determined. You can do what you want. It's like a Sinatra doctrine of climate change. You do what you want. Uh, you monitor your own performance, basically, and that they are contributions. They're not commitments. They're not, you know, this is not going to be enforced by sanctions or anything. It's not going to be uh, policed by some international UN bureaucrats coming around and checking your coal mines or your, uh, your steel plants. Um, it's going to be your own nationally determined contribution. Um, so in a way, that that phrase, I think, is the, the, the core of the Paris Agreement, along with the other thing it had was this ratchet mechanism, which said that every five years you've got to come back and you've got to ratchet up your commitment. Each each You come up with a plan that says we'll do this in the next 10 years or so, up to 2030 in most cases it's been. Uh, we're going to cut our emissions by then and we're going to have all these policies to slow deforestation, uh, clean up agriculture. Um, and then, um, you know, the uh, uh, they're not these plans have, have been put in place nationally determined. They will be policed pretty much by national governments. But of course, we're coming to a crunch point because it's clear that in many cases they're not going to they're not going to ratchet up their commitments. 20, the Glasgow summit was a moment when everybody was meant to ratchet up their commitments five years after Paris with an extra year from the pandemic. Um, but many of them haven't done it in a convincing way. Is this, so I guess a lot of people will be saying, um, yes, okay, you're showing some of the things that have been achieved, especially the wording, right? Using the word yeah. contribution, but also obviously like the big, right? Achievement like Paris and perhaps opening the doors in terms of loss and damage, right? With the Shan yeah. Sheikh. Um, is it, uh, how successful do you think they've been? Because you've got on the on, on the likes of Greta Thornberry say, we've only got a few more years left, this is too slow. On the other hand, do you think essentially what we're seeing with the summit is about the speed you can get with a big UN organization of more than 160 countries? Yeah, I mean, the, the core of the Paris Agreement also, of course, is these goals for cutting emissions uh, to for limiting global warming to well below two degrees while pursuing efforts for 1.5. Um, so 1.5, I think most climate scientists would agree is is totally off the table, really. But the negotiations, since they committed to doing this, are still pretending that it's a, a, it's, a it's available there. So Greta Thunberg and, and other activists are right to say this is just a lot of it is just blah, blah, blah. And we're talking too much rather than shifting towards some stricter way of in, in assuring implementation. You know, the, the the Paris Agreement says in its, uh, you know, the follow up, it's going to be it's, it's non punitive. There are no sanctions. So it's collaborative. You're meant to help encourage people. But if they're not really going to carry out their own commitments, these nationally determined contributions, that there's there's 
There's no stick. What could be the stick? And could there be a way of changing this process? And there has been, I know, talk. Um, there's a new uh, Secretary General or Director of the UN UNFCCC um, uh, who has talked about changing the negotiation or at least trying to reform the negotiation process. Is there other ways on a kind of multilateral way of trying to improve this and speed up this process? Yeah, I mean, as you say, the <laughs> glacial progress over um, since um, Angela Merkel was the first um, president of a COP when she was environment minister in the German government back in Berlin in 1995. And they really haven't done very well in, in, in sorting out this problem yet. And as you say, Simon Steele, who's the, the head of the um, UNFCCC, the, the UN climate change, says that you've got to you've got to go from talking about climate change to implementing the changes you've promised. You know, he said um, just before Sharm El Sheikh that, you know, the biggest gap we must bridge is the gap between aspiration and reality. He compared what the, what's being done to like fighting a wildfire with a garden hose. Um, you know, the, these 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 talks have also sort of exploded in terms of their size. There were fewer than 4000 people at um, uh, the first COP in Berlin. Now there's close to 40,000 in Sharm el-Sheikh. There were almost 40,000 in, in Glasgow as well. So, you know, it's it ballooned from being governments and media and NGOs to being businesses and, and cities and, and everybody on the sidelines as well, which is great because it means that everybody's becoming involved, but it's just steering through this thicket of of what, what, how do you sort that out to make it into a more streamlined process? I think it's, it's not been solved. A lot of people have said, you know, the problem with the, the, um, the way things are decided at these meetings is by consensus. You have to have consensus in the room. Um, that doesn't mean that every country has a veto. Um, it means that the person who's the president of the meeting, when he, he or she feels that there is an overwhelming agreement in the room, he or she will bang down the gavel to say, bang, that's it, it's agreed. I've been to several meetings where, for example, um, the Russians were overruled in Qatar at the end of the, at the, end of the meeting. The Russian was delegate was waving his hands furiously saying, I want to talk, I want to talk, but the, he was ignored. This was, you know, a day and a half into overtime. We were staring at a second sleepless night uh, and the delegates were staring at a third or fourth sleepless night probably. But the Russians were overruled. That that caused a, a big democratic backlash from, if you like, democratic backlash. I'm not sure from Russia um, at the next inform at the next sort of um, intercessional meeting where they refused to accept anything happening at all. They they kind of blocked everything. Um, in in Cancun um, uh, in 2010, the Bolivian delegates refused to go along with everything until and made long long speeches. Um, uh, objecting to the deal that was on the table until Patricia Espinosa, who was the foreign minister at the time, just said, sorry, Bolivia, everybody else wants to do this, bang, you're out. Mm -hmm. um, and in a way, I think perhaps Laurent Fabius in Paris was the best one at handling this because he he realised that the, the, the Nicaragua was opposed to the Paris Agreement, the only country that was opposed to Nicaragua. But instead of allowing Nicaragua to talk endlessly as Bolivia had done in, in, in Cancun, he had obviously spoken to the Nicaraguan delegate and said to, said to him, look, we've, 
you're perfectly within your rights to object to this, but I'm going to bang this through because clearly everybody else agrees to this. But after I've banged it through, you can give your speech. So there was no way that him, the Nicaraguans talking before the gavel came down would influence other countries to start objecting too. Now, back in Copenhagen as well, Copenhagen failed because there were too many countries that um, put up their hands and said, we don't like this deal. Copenhagen was was the last big summit before Paris, really. And, and that was the chance to come up with a really strong plan to fight climate change up to 2020. But, you know, there were the small island states, um, uh, uh, Bolivia, Sudan, um, a lot of the others, we just couldn't couldn't take this um, this agreement. So they they put up such a fight in the um, in in the in the plenary overnight. Um, Claudia Salerno, the the Venezuelan delegate, famously banged her hand so hard that it started bleeding when she was calling for, uh, and made a big point out of this. The Sudanese delegate compared the policies of um, developed countries to the Holocaust, causing outrage. But that it it. Just fell apart because the, the the management of the conference wasn't brilliant by the Danes. Um, but so some reform is needed, right? To to in a sense, right? I guess one, you know, what you're talking about essentially there's almost a bit too much. I wouldn't say democracy because I think democracies work actually on pushing things through, right? And they don't work yes. on giving too many hands, allowing too many hands up. So that's I don't think that's so much a, a democratic issue, but a pro procedural issue about how you get disparate elements, yes. right? Um, on board. But what, what does it say about, I mean, when you're, you know, with all the experience you've had, um, there's a huge amount of cynicism growing, growing cynicism, which we see in populist movements against multilateral organizations against the UN. And that's, we've had that in the past too, but I, I think we're seeing that now, the skepticism about the EU, the skepticism about the UN. There's definitely skepticism about the kind of, you know, the people flying into Shamshet you know, or to all the different COP conferences. What, where do you think we should be focusing? Should it be at that level or should it be more at the nation state and just saying, you know, we just have to hope our governments get their act together? Or should we, do you think, perhaps be just relying on um, some, tech, you know, technological breakthroughs and almost ignoring these state actors or these multi-state actors? Big question, but... Uh... Yeah, <laughs> Well, I... I, I also saw that Simon Steele, the head of the UN uh, climate change, also said, you know, in this speech calling for reform that multilateralism and collective action provide the only way forward. Um, I think he's he's right on the nail with that, actually. You know, these these climate talks, they're easy to knock them and to say how ridiculous everything is. But it's, um, you know, you, you can't move away from the system of having um, consensus. I think you could shift to having multi, you could shift to having um a majority voting is sometimes proposed, but nobody would go along with that. Um, in Copenhagen, they tried to say, okay, um, instead of everybody turning up, nominate some delegates from small island states, from OPEC countries, and we'll have an inner circle to negotiate these things. But that doesn't work either. So the, the pressure for reform is clearly, you know, um, Going to have to come from elsewhere, isn't it? From uh, young people. Greta Thunberg is a great. Um, uh, calling this out, but I'm not sure she's really got a solution to how how mm -hmm. we solve this. Um, there, was, there was an interesting, I thought one of the most interesting things I heard about Sharma Steff was, and I think it was actually funded by something related to the UN, where they picked out like 60 kind of young leaders and gave them a year's training in negotiation. Um, 
And then they put them, inserted these 60 people into their respective country delegations. So instead of having some gray old men around, you at least have in each of these 60 different countries in one in each delegate, in each delegation in the room, someone who is in their kind of mid-20s, late-20s, but not so much like Greta Thunberg, who, who can often come across as more ideological, right? These were young people yes. kind of versed in the art of give and take, of negotiation, of real-world politics, which I thought was a really interesting, you know, one way, at least one way forward of kind of nudging, not negotiations. Uh, yeah, forward. That's, and it, that's a really good idea. I mean, the, 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 the way that um, the climate talks always work out is that nothing much happens the first week or two. And it's only at the very last moment, the last day when it comes down to the crunch, that everybody says, OK, there's a package to be done here, but my demand hasn't really been heard yet. So I'm going to object so much that until they until they build it into the consensus document that, you know, I'm just going to sit here all night and potentially through the weekend all night and to fight my corner. Um, I think if you could say you cannot come up with a new demand until uh, until you get to the, you know, you have to every demand has to be on the table in the first week, for example, or something. Um, and as you say, just open up the delegations a little bit more. Um, if you could allow in more observers as well into the meetings, I think that would help. Um, there are too many of these meetings are closed. Um, I think people would help also if they gave more news conferences to 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 explain their their views to the to the media. Then you can have a, a more public debate about things about what's going on behind closed doors. Often, what goes on behind closed doors is uh, pretty tedious stuff, but sometimes there are important points that um, do come out. Do you? Have, I just wondered. Did you ever talk or you know to old timers? old diplomatic timers who've been through these processes, who do see optimism in these processes, you know, that, that understand like trade negotiations that also can go on for a decade or not, um, that you do actually achieve real things. I mean, if you talk to me, these kind of people say, yeah, you know, I know we don't get good press, but something will eventually happen. I think there's a lot of feeling about like that in the, in the among the delegates who've been around for a long time, yeah, that they think, you know, this is unfortunately the process we're saddled with. We can't uh, realistically move to majority voting or something. We we have to listen to every side, every voice. It's it's a terrible system, but you can't really come up with a better system. Um, it's it's uh, you're you're sort of locked, and and they feel, you know, when they sometimes a lot of these old ne negotiators, I think, feel um, kind of misunderstood and underappreciated because they've they've threaded a lot of needles along the way to 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 reach consensus about things like the paris agreement i mean the paris agreement the the wording in the paris agreement is extraordinary when you read it um the words fossil fuels do not appear in the paris agreement you know it's um it's all about moving to a new era of clean energy and away from fossil fuels but the words fossil fuels don't appear there you know the the Saudis or the OPEC countries would object to, to objected to that. So, um, you know, it's the, the skill of negotiating the Paris Agreement. I mean, if you read the Paris Agreement, it's almost impenetrable, but it means something to these people who are versed in these this language. Um, they should really be obliged to write it in a <laughs> clearer way. <laughs> and perhaps one of the things, I guess, if we looked at um, if someone would say, well, they've achieved nothing, I guess. 
you can we can always point to a couple of agreements, right? One would be the Montreal. Was it Montreal? I always get this name wrong. Montreal Protocol was it on greenhouse emissions? Yeah, the Montreal Protocol was done by under a separate um, uh, process. Yeah, where they indeed that they've they, they it's uh, about it was on chemicals, the ozone, right? Was, uh, chemicals yeah, yeah, damage the ozone layer. Yeah, yeah, the, the things that are used in refrigerants and hairsprays and things that were uh, damaging the ozone layer that protects the planet from ultraviolet rays. I mean, the, 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 it's been it's often called the most successful environmental treaty from 1987 um, because it's, um, you know, it saves two million people, I think, from skin cancer a year is the estimate. And the ozone layer is getting repaired. Of course, you know, they did. Um, it was about phasing out these these chemicals called CFCs. Of course, you know, the, the economic incentives were already underway. There was a shift already towards um, HFCs, another form of um, that are used in in, in um, a cleaner in form. Yeah, cleaner a cleaner form. And then, of course, they discovered, unfortunately, that HFCs are very very potent greenhouse gases. So they had to come back, come back in 2018 and um, phase those out as well under something called the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol. But it was it's it's one of the very few. It got universal approval. The the um, uh, the, the Montreal Protocol. That's partly because the the big producing countries uh, were all on board. So you couldn't buy these things any longer even if you wanted them for your old refrigerator you couldn't get them any longer so you know it's it's there's economics has been built into that so i think once you get if you get to this tipping point now in in climate policy where as we're seeing now solar power wind power is getting so cheap that it's it's solar power is cheaper than coal um then the economics fall into place um you know, I live in Norway. I bought we bought a, an electric car because it's actually cheaper overall. You know, it's more expensive to buy, but there are a lot of subsidies. You don't pay a lot of the taxes. You don't pay VAT tax. Um, the running costs until energy prices went through the roof because of the war in Ukraine and so on. Um, it's cheaper to charge. So if you can get the the Montreal Protocol was brilliant, a brilliant step forward because it brought economics in line with environmental goals those two things came into parallel so it it was a no-brainer there was no point it obviously you had to you had to adopt it so i guess a last question we're coming to the end of the podcast Alistair. i mean are you then essentially a kind of um, a cautious optimist optimist about these kind of processes eventually bearing fruit or do you think it's all just too too slow too late I mean, it's uh, I'm a very cautious optimist. Let's say, um, you know, we're 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 way over. We're going to be way over 1.5 degrees, which is the goal of the Paris, the ideal goal of the Paris Agreement. Um, within a decade, perhaps, um, it's it's we're way off track. You know, they're headed for 2.7 degrees of warming. I think so. But then again, there are these bright spots, you know, the, the fall in energy prices, in, in renewable energy prices. Um, and of course, things have changed even since Paris, you know, when the Paris Agreement, the Paris Agreement says we should aim for net zero in the second half of the century. But governments have, have come forward and they've 
most of the net zero goals are set for 2050 by developed countries, not not for 2099, the 31st of December. Um, so we've, we've, we've come back, of course, this is under pressure from ever worsening um, climate impacts, um, but still, you know, so there is, there's definite movement, but we're heading for a crash where everybody's promised to try and respect the 1.5 goal. We're gonna go over that and we're gonna see how serious they are about reaching net zero. Um, so slightly optimistic, but <laughs> not hugely. Well, thanks. Thanks, Alistair Doyle. Uh, your book, uh, The Great Melt, is still out there. Uh, it's very highly recommended from me and a lot of other people. Uh, thanks very much for your time, Alistair. Well, Alistair, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Democracy Ideas podcast. Keep following International Idea on social media. We need all of you to participate in constructing better societies. Goodbye.